Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tied in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast, episode 21. Now today, guys, we are interviewing the world-renowned Dr. Stuart McGill, PhD. Now, Dr. McGill was a professor at the University of Waterloo in Canada for over 30 years, where his experimental research clinic and team investigated issues related to the causes of back pain. So what causes back pain was their speciality. Now, Dr. McGill himself has authored three books, hundreds of articles and scientific journal papers, and he's become the go-to expert for medical groups, governments, uh, countless elite and Olympic level athletes. In short, guys, this world-renowned professor is the guy to talk to about back pain. We talked to Dr. McGill about why we get back pain, how we can help ourselves if we do get it, and of course, how to prevent it with his very famous Big Three routine. You'll find out all about that later. Now, there is a ton of info in this podcast, and as always, we've tried to keep it as accessible as possible to help you guys at home understand your own pain better. That is half the battle after all. As always, if you like what we're doing, head over to the Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, go straight to the Back Pain podcast pages, hit like, subscribe, and of course, share it with all your friends, family, and loved ones. We do love the questions that you're asking at the moment. Do keep them coming. We always try our best to answer them either in person or create a specific podcast tailored to answering that question for you. Because if you're asking it, other people are probably asking it as well. For now, though, guys, sit back, relax, listen to myself and Rob interview Dr. Stuart McGill, world-famous back pain expert. Let's go. Well, uh, good morning, Dave and Rob. I'm in uh, Canada, (laughs) in uh, central Ontario. Uh, So it's good morning uh, for me and good evening to you. Stuart, do tell us... uh, uh, so how did you become a leading expert in the spine? <laughs> well, I, I can give a very short answer or an answer that uh, would, would lead to a convergence on that answer. The, the, the first one, it, it probably will sound a bit arrogant, and I don't intend that to be, but when patients come here and I ask them, who have you seen and what did they do for you? Uh, it seems there's a great void between what is the real cause of back pain for that particular individual and the, the lack of assessment and the generic uh, treatment that the patient was given, uh, and, and it did nothing for them. So they come here, and uh, uh, we, we know our score. We uh, follow up with every patient, uh, and uh, I, I guess making that difference when others have failed has has led to uh, a, a little bit of uh, uh, notoriety, I suppose. But the longer answer uh, is I, I have a, a different educational background, I suppose, than the t- uh, typical tradition. 
I started off uh, undergrad at university learning uh, anatomy, uh, physiology, neurology, biomechanics, sociology, psychology, uh, which gave me a rather broad beginning. And then I did a master's degree where uh, before I started in biomechanics, I did my core in me mechanical engineering, <laughs> statics, dynamics, strength and materials, etc., which gave me an, an appreciation for structure. Uh, and then I did my PhD in spine biomechanics. Well, it, it's always been my personality to uh, probe how things work. So when I became a professor, we started out with one simple question, how does the spine work? And I put together two different laboratories, one where we probed real people and created a technology to figure out what the stress distribution was among the various components of their back when they did things and we noticed that when they did a certain thing that caused pain when we went back to look at the stress map there it was the pain occurred in the back where the stress exceeded the tolerance of that particular uh, part the the next element which was rather unique was the university gave us complete freedom and leeway to do our research and the Canadian government funding is arranged in such a way that they give a young scientist money and then every few years they audit the progress of that scientist and if it's satisfactory they get another round of money but the money is uh, there's no strings attached just do good work well it allows you to be uh, very creative and take risks. So we took research risks and found things that wasn't uh, really uh, fostered in other scientific uh, cultures where a scientist would have to submit an application and provide a proof of principle and all these kinds of things, which took all the risk out, but there was no serendipitous discovery. Uh, and then we would be asked uh, to come to medical meetings and present our, our new findings. And the clinicians would say, oh, could you come and see a patient with us? Uh, because what you just showed us, uh, we think might unlock uh, a secret or an insight into why this person is stubborn and not getting better. And so that, with that, we uh, started the experimental clinic at the university. And, and as you know, uh, we realized that Patients were not getting a thorough assessment, so they never really had a, a precise understanding of what the pain mechanism was. So we started out with a two-hour appointment to assess these new patients, and then we found that wasn't long enough. So then we set aside three hours for a very thorough investigation, and this was absent in the traditional uh, healthcare system. So for the first time, these patients were really getting an understanding of what the mechanism was and then what they should and shouldn't do. So the, the final bit of it was uh, we then were sent uh, very top athletes from around the world. And you can imagine if you were a car mechanic and you got to work on an F1 race car team you would learn about what is possible in the top level of automotive performance 
And that's how I describe our experience with athletes. We got to measure and test drive Olympic medalists in sprinting, weightlifting, top rugby and football players. In other words, what was optimal in this human uh, form? And then we learned what we could pull out of that and bring down to the average person. So, you know, why does Honda race F1 race cars? Well, the reason is the uh, transmission gear change technology is now in the Honda Civic. But that was based on F1 experience. So we do the same thing uh, with people. Uh, and I should say the final bit of it was this. Because we didn't have to comply to a specific research agenda, it was always driven by clinicians. So when a clinician or a patient would ask us a question and we answered, we don't know, that became our next research question. So it was an evolution driven from real need. What did the clinicians and patients really need to know? So I, I guess that was the process and story of how we evolved over the, the 32 years to have this rather unique uh, perspective and, and process. Absolutely. That freedom allowed you to, to work in the direction which would be logical and which you the information you did next rather than having to wait for the next grant on a, a paper that may help or may not help fantastic yeah. exactly i mean i remember uh you know the very first time i really appreciated ultrasound we had an olympic gymnast come in and uh she was complaining about her back pain but she said i have this funny little pain in my lateral obliques lateral to my navel uh every time i do this with my back and I said, really? And we took out a, a cardiac ultrasound probe and we just watched her muscles contract. Well, as you know, when a muscle contracts, it implodes, it pulls together, it shortens. But then we saw an exact and precisely located muscle tear. And that little section of her muscle actually pulled apart. So we knew exactly where the flaw was, where the muscle tear was. And that opened up our eyes for, for back muscle tears. We just find them with ultrasound. We know exactly where they are. And uh, of course, the first uh, line of uh, clinical intervention is just rest. And we show the person how to rest that particular portion of their muscle. And if it doesn't respond uh, these days, a, an injection of a, a PRP cocktail works magic for local muscle tears. And if that doesn't work, then we know where to direct the surgeon with precision. But there might just be an example of learning things that uh, just so many serendipitous discoveries. So this this different and more um, sort of, I suppose, harmonious between research and clinician background and research then allowed you to take a different approach, um, which is obviously quite different to the the standardized, the, the normal model that a lot of other clinicians were taking, hence why people were through your door. So when it comes to the actual management long term or, or even in the short term of back pain, how would you then differ from the regular clinician on the street? Well, it's interesting that most clinicians are paid to perform a procedure and the procedure that the back pain patient gets is the procedure that that clinician is trained for. Well, what we do is we perform an assessment and then we re rely on our foundational knowledge to 
put together patterns and then we apply the appropriate intervention for the very specific pain trigger that we've identified. So a very thorough assessment, which begins with an interview where we're doing pattern recognition. For example, if we said to a patient, do you ever get a sharp pain in your back when you roll over? And if they say yes, that is the number one question for revealing that they have joint instability. So when a joint in the body becomes damaged, a certain laxity is in the, in, in the joint. You can imagine a knee ligament uh, strain or tear. The knee now becomes lax. So patients are typically taught exercises to try and stiffen and restore normal motion uh, to the back. So uh, in the... Um, uh, in the knee, pardon me, but in the back. I mean, you wouldn't want to manipulate that particular spine pathology. You would want to stabilize it and stiffen it. So the interview uh, allows us to do pattern recognition and converge on what we are then going to precisely test through provocative testing. So we will test uh, joint integrity and instability, and then test specific tissues, uh, et cetera. Um, and then we're also looking at what we call the demand side of the equation. We investigate the person's life. So if they are a, uh, a soccer player, we know the physical demands of soccer. Then we measure their body. Is it currently tuned and capable to meet those specific demands. Or the person might say, look, I'm, I'm a young mother. The biggest thing that causes my back pain is picking my child out of the crib at two o'clock in the morning. And we know the demand of that. What is missing in her body to be unable to meet that demand in a competent, pain-free way? So now we know what to build. So. After we've created this, this very precise understanding of the pain mechanism, and it might be partly lifestyle, it might be partly uh, injury or damage, uh, it might be their occupation, uh, we then look for what we call hacks, ways around that pain mechanism to remove the cause. This allows pain desensitization. You know, if you had a sore thumb, you wouldn't do exercises with it. You'd rest it. <laughs> and then uh, after you've desensitized your sore thumb, you would then build it up through appropriate exercise to stimulate robustness and adaptation. And then your thumb is fine again. So we do the same thing with the back. We stop the cause, allow pain desensitization, and then build it up to meet the specific demands in that person's life. And uh, that really doesn't exist in the traditional healthcare system. So that's uh, what makes us unique, I suppose. Fantastic. And uh, I suppose as well, because you've had that um, analysis of the, you know, the Formula One style athletes, you know, that trickle down of what people should be prepared for, as you said, you then apply those same principles to, as you said, new mums picking up babies or, you know, people getting out the car, you know, picking up something off the floor. 
is a very similar whether whether that's a baby or whether that's you know a 200 kilo deadlift you know the mechanisms of that movement you know and if you understand how a olympic gold medalist should do it those same principles or those same patterns trickle down to the as he said, new mum picking up a baby from the floor. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting comment because these days, and it certainly has evolved with the way work has changed, office work being so dominated by computers, young people in particular are going to the gyms more often uh, now than they ever have done before. And here they are, uh, sitting at a computer for eight to 10 hours a day, and then they go to a gym and start training like an Olympian <laughs> because that's what the, the trainers have them doing. And there is such a mismatch between uh, sitting at the computer and the detuning of their body during that time and then going for this uh, real... Uh, aggressive style of training rather than understanding biology takes time for adaptation and uh, it, it's wonderful to go to the gym but not too many trainers know how to create the adaptations in their body to build robustness so you know I can give example after example of the world's uh, record holders all-time record holders in powerlifting who are the world's best at performing a deadlift. It takes them years and years and years to, to set uh, the, these world records. Uh, and yet, you know, a trainer will have a, a stay-at-home mom deadlifting her body weight after three months in the gym, and then we wonder why she shows up at the clinic. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's that idea of um, uh, yeah, repetition creating that robustness and understanding that the 23 hours of sedentary lifestyle around that one hour um, sort of negate it. That one hour spent in the gym is not the be all and end all to undo all of our sins during the day. Yes. Well, that that's a wise comment. So the first order of business in the gym is to undo the sins. You're exactly right. So probably uh, if a person sits for a long time, an assessment will reveal that they could be uh, have less stress in their back by uh, giving more mobility to their hips, perhaps, and, and de-stressing the discs of their back that have been in a sitting posture uh, all day long. Uh, so true. But uh, another uh, point that I would like to uh, make there is, now you, you've got me again. I, I had a, a, a good point and uh, <laughs> it wasn't adaptation. Why do we get back pain? An easy one, right? What a simple answer. Well, uh, first of all, there's, there's no such thing as nonspecific back pain, which uh, so many people get the diagnosis and it gives them a, a misimpression. Uh, in fact, there's always a cause, just like there's a cause for head pain or a cause for uh, knee pain. But, but that idea of nonspecific back pain is really convenient for the unskilled clinician because it gets them off the hook. So now that I've given that very inflammatory uh, start <laughs> to my answer, uh, I would say that the primary cause is just like any other musculoskeletal pain anywhere else. It's caused from a stress concentration 
that exceeds the tolerance of that particular body part or body region. Now, that could be a magnitude of force, which everyone understands, or it could be a duration that the force is applied. Consider sitting at the computer for eight hours, and then in this COVID environment, sitting another uh, few hours on your phone and computer and Zoom meetings and all the rest of it. Uh, and then there is the repetition. People, unbeknownst to them, create stress concentrations because of the way that they move or their posture or the uh, chronic sport that they play that builds up stress and strain in the tissue over time. But the interesting thing is biology always has a mediator. In other words, all of this can be modulated by rest and your body is highly adaptable. So load is good, but there, like in everything in biology, there is a tipping point. If you have no load or no stress, your body doesn't thrive and adapt to be uh, resilient. So you need an optimal amount of uh, loading and stress, but you cannot cross the tipping point. So there is why do we get back pain? It could be a mismatch between the exposure uh, and it could be too little and it could be too much. So Professor McGill, there are lots of structures in the back from muscles to you know, discs to joints to nerves to tendons to ligaments, all sorts of things that people come in and say, I think I've got this or different diagnoses get thrown around the place. Are there some structures which are, you know, more likely to cause pain in the back, are either the kind of the primary drivers of back pain, or is it kind of a mismatch approach of, of many different things? Uh, the answer to that one is uh, it depends. There absolutely <laughs> are uh, tissues that are involved in back pain with, with uh, great frequency, the disc being one of them. But is it the disc that's causing the pain or is the pathology in the disc and the pain is somewhere else? So just before I get into that, let, let me uh, introduce this, this concept, though. There's always a probe or a test that will reveal the pain that the person says, yes, that's my specific pain. And it might be a specific load. It might come from a specific posture or a specific motion. Or in, to, to answer your, your question, it might be a very specific tissue stress. And then, of course, there are all the psychosocial modulators that change the pain experience. Um, now, in England, it's so interesting uh, with what's gone on in the NHS, for example, recently, where I've had so many patients, uh, and this is pre-COVID, who would fly in from England to come here, and they've been given a pamphlet by the NHS, How to Live With Your Pain. And I thought, really? You've never had an assessment. You don't have to live with this. Um, and, and, you know, they're set, they, they've been told, well, the, the pain is, is uh, magnified in your brain. It's somewhat in, their, in your head. And I've had clinical psychologists and experts in cognitive behavioral therapy come to me and say, you've got to be kidding me. I know cognitive behavioral therapy. This pain is in my back. And uh, when you can deal with the pain in the back, the psychosocial issues disappear. 
Now, if you can get rid of your back pain with a pure psychological intervention, then that's terrific, fabulous. But uh, what I see is people being very confused and having more cognitive dissonance when some therapist or doctor said, oh, you're magnifying your pain. And they say, really, this is, uh, they can't stand the fact that they have uh, mental disorders uh, when they've been dismissed and, and truly the pain uh, is in their back. But you can imagine, let's take two personalities here. Let's take um, one back pained patient where they're a little bit of a, a sloth. They don't like to move. And a therapist says, you know, you're not fragile. Go out and, and challenge your back. That may be pro appropriate or it may not be. I, I'm not sure. But now let's take a different personality. Go to your local CrossFit gym. And CrossFit creates a culture of movement and exercise. It's a fabulous culture. However, it attracts a certain type of very keen personality person. Can you imagine a person at CrossFit who's way over driving their back and then the therapist says exactly the same instruction? You're not fragile, keep going. And it was the CrossFit athlete, you've got to hold back, but it's the person who doesn't like to move that you have to encourage to move. So do you see the same psychological in intervention could be very appropriate for one and highly inappropriate for the other. So yet again, the assessment will reveal um, all of this. But uh, getting onto the, your question about specific uh, tissues, we have tests, as you know, to uh, probe specific tissues. Uh, we might uh, see some injury on uh, medical images, but uh, you know you can take a picture of my face, which would be an image, and you would see uh, some old scars perhaps, and you might see a fresh wound with blood trickling out of it. Well, an MRI shows the full history of all of the wounds and all of the scars. And a radiologist never sees the person, so they never know what they're seeing is a wound or a scar. A wound causes pain, a scar, there's no pain anymore. So you have to assess the person first, then all of a sudden the MRI makes sense. So, you know, we do all of this, but if I said to you, here's a patient coming in, when they sit at the computer for 40 minutes, their big toe on their right foot goes numb and then becomes painful, you know, what neural root that is, don't you? If you know it's L5 on yeah. the right-hand side. Yeah. So lumbar five. If I said there's a, a numbness in the little toes, you know that's the fourth root. You know if the pain is around the front of the thigh and we do a femoral root test, we'll be picking up roots of L3 and L2. In other words, the pain patterns give some precision. And then if you go to the MRI and say, oh, look, there's an open fissure at L3 on the nerve root that is a wound we've just identified the cause now let's provide the mechanical antidote why don't we have the person lay on a table relaxed breathing and just see if the numbness goes away in other words you precisely unloaded the fissured delamination in their disc so that level of precision allows you to apply a antidote and see if you're right on track. It confirms your uh, diagnosis immediately. 
Um, but I started out by saying, well, the discs are usually involved. Um, if we went back to that example where I asked the question, do you get sharp pains in your back when you roll over? Uh, and if the patient says yes, that's almost always a sign of joint instability. Now, is the pain coming from the disc? It may or it may not be, but the fact is the disc has been damaged. It's a little bit flatter now. That's allowed micro movements, and it might be triggering pain from a facet joint or through uh, stressing a ligament or, or irritating a specific nerve root. So it's a pathway where when you change the mechanics of the joint by damaging a disc, now all sorts of related tissues can experience a stress overload and become painful. So do you see it's sort of a, a, uh, a little bit of a house of cards. That, that phraseology you use there, um, instability, a lot of people listening may have heard that either from a therapist, a clinician, a doctor. Could you describe for us what, what you mean by instability? What, what's meant when, when that's told to someone? Well, I can be very precise with it because we were, there's only three laboratories in the world that I know of that really measures spine instability. Mm -hmm. So let me give the example of a knee. A normal knee is a stable joint, but are you familiar with a drawer test where you pull the lower leg forward when a person is, is laying uh, supine? Um, if the knee is unstable, in other words, a ligament has been damaged, you get much more motion in that knee. In other words, the knee has now a laxity to it. Well, the spine has exactly the same uh, local instability due to a damaged ligament or uh, a disc, for example, that uh, has been flattened. And that type of instability creates micro movements at a joint that triggers pain. So the, 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 the character of those kinds of pains is a person moves a certain way and then all of a sudden they have a movement catch and it takes their breath away. A specific phase of the movement gave the impression that someone jabbed a knife into their back. So that's almost always a joint instability. But there are other types of instabilities as well. You can imagine if I took five oranges and stacked them one on top of the other and put a book on top of those oranges, the oranges would fly apart. So that is an unstable structure. Now, everyone can understand that if I want to create a a post uh, out of those stack of oranges, I'd be much better to use a steel beam. It's rigid. But the spine is not rigid. It is a flexible rod. And what kind of engineer would build a flexible rod and then put load down it? Which is what you do when you're picking up your baby out of the crib or when you're performing a deadlift. So that flexible structure, it's wonderful to have flexibility. It allows us to dance and procreate and have all kinds of fun with our backs. However, when you carry load, the demands change. Now you must stiffen that flexible rod and you stiffen it by creating a three-dimensional muscular girdle all around the spine. So that's the role of the abdominal wall and muscles like quadratus lumborum and the psoas and latissimus dorsi and that kind of thing. So when you see the great athletes being coached on how to do a deadlift, they're taught how to grab the bar, twist the bar, lock their, their 
scapulate down and try and pull their shoulders back down into their back pockets. And these kinds of coaching cues are all about creating this muscular girdle. So that's the second type of spine in uh, stability, to stiffen this flexible column when it's being loaded. But that's an inappropriate stability when a person just wants to walk and dance and, and, and that kind of thing. So there, there's, there's layers upon layers once again of uh, stability, but uh, the, the, the main message at the end of it is there's always an appropriate stability. And uh, once a person has had a, a little bit of an injury, they need a little bit of coaching on how to tune that stability to uh, take their pain away. If, uh, you know, the, the, the key of what we do is to coach the patient on how to achieve subclinical symptoms. In other words, you're not going to fix the disc uh, over maybe 10 years, the disc will stiffen and regain its normal stability and all the micro movements are gone. Like I'm in my mid 60s now. I don't have any micro movements in my back anymore. I have no pain. So it's, isn't it interesting that 40 year olds, when they have a little bit of a flattened disc, get these very acute episodes in their back that might last a few days or a week, but they don't retire with those. That type of back pain goes away. So when they were in their 40s, sitting at the computer caused their back pain and going for a walk took their pain away. But when they're in their 60s, going for a walk creates their pain and sitting down is the relief. So again, the back pain changed its character and its mechanism as those tissues evolved. Even, even though the drivers of pain were the same? Mm. Well, well, or the, well, the, well, the, they, the mechanism, of, yeah, original mechanism. Yeah, it, it, sure, exactly, yeah. But, but that, that will all evolve and adapt. And, and the key for clinicians is to assist that adaptation so that the person still has that existing condition in their back. However, they've been taught how to manage it. So it's no issue. And, you know, I've got proof upon proof. I've got people competing in the Olympics who've managed their back conditions to a subclinical level at the highest level of performance. The, the, the man who has the highest Wilkes score in human history, that's the highest combination of body weight normalized, bench press, deadlift, and squat. I've got people in the UFC, in the NHL, top level soccer. Uh, you know, there's not a sport where we haven't been able to create strategies where that person has managed their situation to subclinical levels. Golf, we, we've had some spectacular uh, career turnarounds uh, there by, again, understanding the mechanism and creating a foundation for that person to uh, manage their situations to club subclinical levels. And it was basically stop the silly things they were doing before and create a program that builds robustness and it's it's, it's quite evidence-based <laughs> there's no there's no magic to it it's it's just a, yeah. a, a a solid scientific process so no matter the um not necessarily the physicality but no matter the movement pattern it's that same um assessment desensitization and then move to robustness you know move to improve that robustness to return to sport 
whether you're a UFC fighter or a golfer or a, or a mum. Yeah. Right. But they might take different programs to get <laughs> them there. And, and it's so interesting that, uh, you know, a jujitsu master uh, has a quite a different body type than, uh, say, someone who is, is uh, much more of a strength kind of uh, uh, combat athlete. Or a, uh, a power lifter is very, very different from a soccer player. So, uh, you know, a, a power lifter creates stiffness in their body. They create even more stiffness by using knee wraps and wrist wraps and elastic body suits to create more stiffness to bear more load. Um, and, and deadlifting creates stiffness. Now, do you really want that kind of stiffness in a soccer player? No, they're an elastic, explosive uh, endurance type of athlete. So don't have them deadlifting. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? So, <laughs> so the tools are all creating adaptations. And it's a matter of knowing what the end goal of the sport. I see some athletes who are de-evolved in their athleticism by, by their trainers, giving them these generic exercises. And I say, well, why are you doing this? And, and they can't even answer that question. If, if you can't answer why you're doing a specific question, I think you should get rid of the exercise. You know, every exercise is a tool to create a specific adaptation. And if you follow that rule, a lot of people's training program will change. Well, I mean, having said that, there are some fabulous trainers who adhere mm -hmm. to that. But it, it's just like if we go back to that F1 race car example, uh, do you notice it's the same mechanics year after year who build those superstar cars? It's exactly the same way with coaches and trainers. It's the same coaches who build one top fighter after another or the same top uh, a, a Olympian. You know, I'm, I've got a meeting next week with a, a coach who – uh, probably has more sprint medals to his credit than anyone else in, in history. There's a reason for it. He knows how to tune the body to be fast. <laughs> you know, it, it's a real expertise. So if that's the, that, 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 we went through a, uh, just to bring you back, uh, we went through a really traditional or a very common presentation of an instability, an, an, an instable facet joint or joint complex within the spine. Um, if we were to look at something like a, a disc irritation or a, a disc bulge that we talked about earlier, um, what would be the typical presentation that you'd find coming through the clinic? All right. Well, first of all, there's no such thing as just a generic disc bulge. There are subcategories of uh, disc bulges. So one category and a fairly common one uh, just, I, I have to get into the anatomy of the disc now. So the middle core of the disc is a gel and around the gel, uh, is a wall, a multi-layered concentric ring architecture of collagen fibers. Those collagen fibers are held together with a ground substance. Now you can adapt that ground substance to be very stiff. So we've just identified what you want if you want to be a deadlifter or a power lifter. But most people don't want to be so stiff that they can't, you know, scratch their ear or bend down and tie their shoe. You'll notice power lifters come into the clinic wearing sandals and Birkenstocks. The reason is they can't tie their own shoes. So that's <laughs> not, it, it's a very precise kind of athleticism. They're extremely strong. 
but is is that what you want for life? And then the next person comes in who's a who's just a yoga master. They're extremely flexible, but that spine, those collagen fibers are. It's not that the collagen fibers are loose, but the stuff that holds them together, the ground substance, becomes very viscous and compliant. So when they perform uh, heavier lifts, as they bend their spine through the range of motion under heavy load, those collagen fibers now delaminate and the hydraulic gel gets pressurized and it starts to work its way through the delaminations and it creates a pathway through the disc. And on MRI, you will see that fissured disc. Well, radiologists don't know much about this. But when we look at MRI, we will say there is an open fissured disc bulge. Now we know that when you fully flex and bend down and pick up your child, once in a while, you will get a stab in your back and you have three days of absolute health. You're locked up and you're laying in bed. And it takes that length of time for the inflammation to, to settle down and that nucleus will slowly get vacuumed back in uh, and, and the disc bulge will shrink. So that's very different from uh, a disc where there's been extruded material and, and over time the antibodies, uh, an inflammatory process, usually digests the extruded material. Another type of disc bulge is you can imagine letting a little bit of air out of your car tire. When you let some air out of your car tire, it bulges. Every time it rolls, that bulge is still there, and the car is sloppy on the road. So if you damage an end plate, which is the top and the bottom of the disc, that lets a little pressure out of the car tire. The disc flattens into what's called a broad-based bulge. So the bulge is all the way around. Now that is... Uh, that very sloppy disc with lots of micro movements. So the the uh, very focal kind of a disc bulge is more likely to pick up a specific nerve root. In other words, when I sit, my right toe goes on fire, for example. Whereas a broad-based bulge uh, uh, would cause, well, one day my right buttock is inflamed. The next day I've got pain down my left shin. In other words, the pains are migrating and it's a very unstable pattern to the pain. That's much more characteristic of the broad-based bulge and the micro movements that are triggering different symptoms. But if a person says, no, every single day the pain never changes, it's in my big right toe, uh, that's much more characteristic of a, of a focal disc bulge. So um, what can you do about the focal disc bulge? You learn to move through the hips, learn to hip hinge, uh, probably sitting in a chair with a lumbar support, uh, doing what we call the big three, taking frequent walks throughout the day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the person with a broad-based bulge, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a different program. It's a program to uh, unload the spine, allow it to desensitize, and then start building a robustness uh, around it. But generally speaking, the compressive load-bearing ability needs to build over time, whereas the focal disc bulge, it is the flexion intolerance. It's more of a directional intolerance. So anyway, there's, there's just a little bit of a start. So there's, again, a person coming and saying, well, I've got a disc bulge or herniated disc that lacks so much 
precision that it's, uh, you don't have much hope to have a very precise intervention that matched to that. But interestingly enough, uh, the person can do some simple tests. I mean, simply sitting on a stool and slouching. And if that causes your radiating symptom, you've just identified the flexion intolerance that, that causes the pain. Or it might be a broad-based disc bulge. And when you sit upright and lift your tail and drop your right shoulder back, so now you've got a twisting extension. Ah, there is a sharp pain. And uh, the, the, the pain... Uh, tissue origin, it might be the left-sided facet joint, but it's angry and overused because the disc is flat. So you see, uh, it's not like breaking your leg. You can be back to work once the, the leg bone heals. But if you change the mechanics of the joint, it takes stress and migrates it to another tissue, a healthy tissue. And over time, that, that will become painful. So you know with your disc, uh, patients, that can be the primary. But if a person comes in with facet uh, pain, it's almost always two or three years after a disc injury, isn't it? Very rarely, to, in, unless a person has been traumatized in a motor vehicle accident or they've been cracked in the back from behind in a rugby collision or something, uh, that might be a, an acute scenario for, uh, uh, you know, a a sensitized uh, facet joint. But then, you know, you look on the MRI and bingo, there it is. You see some edema in the bone on that facet joint. But the radiologist never knows to look for that because they've never seen the patient. Whereas we have seen and assessed the patient and, you know, we form the hypothesis. You have pain coming from the right-sided facet joint. Oh, and there it is. Now we see all the edema in the bone. So basically, you've got a bone bruise at the base of the facet joint. So we will get as precise as that. Well, well that brings us quite nicely. When we're able to, to look back and say, oh, well, this, this may have been the start of the problem. It's then a reaction of your body to that initial uh, disc issue. Let's look forwards. Uh, prediction, uh, predictors of back injuries. Um, uh, what can we do to predict who will have uh, one of these injuries in the future? Well, uh, the assessment will certainly give you some clues because pain forms subcategories around specific sports and around specific occupations. And a skilled clinician will recognize these. So let me give, uh, I'm going to give this back to you now. You've got a 15-year-old female gymnast who has pain on extension and now has continual low-grade back pain, but real sharp pain with spine movement. If I gave you that pattern, would you have a suspicion as to what that pain driver is? Yes. Or if I, <laughs> okay, does it, does it start with an S-P-O-N-D? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you, you say the word. Yeah, spondylolisthesis. Yeah. Exactly. So there, it's as plain as day. Uh, now, if I said to you, um, of all the patients that you've seen in your career, who has spondylolisthesis at the greatest rate? Wouldn't you say young female gymnasts and dancers, probably? Yes. Every time. Every time. So there you go. So you see, that came from a very specific overload 
of uh, stress. Now, I'm going to give you the next one. You have a, cro a, a person who trains at the CrossFit gym, and they come in with uh, posterior thigh pain that radiates down to the big toe on the right side, and they do 20 burpees, and then they do 20 Olympic lifts to fatigue. What would you expect them to uh, have as their primary pain mechanism? So likely some sort of fissure-based disc irritation. Uh. <laughs> That's exactly how you create them. You create a lot of mobility, and then you go to fatigue, your form breaks, and you've just created the absolutely perfect mechanical scenario to get an open fissure disc bulge. Now you've got a 70-year-old coming into your clinic, and they have pain where uh, it comes down the front of their thigh when they go walking, and sitting relieves it. Have you got another subcategory of pain now? <laughs> so do you, do you, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, I can give you scenario after scenario, and you can tell me. So now, I mean, this isn't mysterious. And, you know, it went, uh, people on the internet on, uh, oh, what's that thing called? Social media. Oh, yes. And they'll say, you know, pain <laughs> is in your I've and heard whatnot. Of uh, it, it's, it's, it just shows uh, a lack of expertise in being a real spine expert. Uh, a, a spine expert knows these patterns and they'll see them right away. And these are all very, very different mechanisms leading to pain. So uh, I, I know both of you are familiar with the textbook that I wrote for clinicians called Low Back Disorders. And uh, the whole middle section of the book is about these various scenarios and how you would test them clinically to uh, confirm that in fact that's exactly what you're dealing with with that particular person so yet again there's no such thing as non-specific back pain it's much more subcategorized and highly specific than that i suppose it's the the skill and the willingness to delve deeper to find those subcategories and therefore the appropriate treatment yeah, yes but the, the the problem is there are very few spine experts who have that expertise. I know you have it and you, <laughs> I, I know you've been to my lectures before and you attended a good institution that, that trained you in all of these subcategories of pain. Indeed. Um, so we're looking at these different sports and we can, we can make predictions with um, uh, the likelihood of injury factors. Is there hope for the multidisciplinary sport? Is there hope for someone who wants great mobility but also wants to uh, stay strong? Um, do we have to choose one path and stick to it? Oh, well, that's a fabulous question. Biology will uh, create a bandwidth on that. So if you want to be a power lifter, uh, you have to avoid mobility. Uh, you need stiff hamstrings. You have to have a stiff spine, uh, etc. But it won't allow you to, to th throw a rugby ball. You'll be miserable on a soccer field, uh, etc. Uh, and, and yet, some people, they, they do yoga and they do deadlifts. Those two don't go together. You're, you're, you're confusing the biological adaptation. So there's many yoga masters, which are fine. If you want to be a yoga master, go ahead. But I would avoid uh, the heavy lifts. So you're right. You have to make a choice. So now let's take a combat athlete who's a mixed martial artist. They need explosive power, but they need endurance. 
So those two are mutually exclusive. They're different systems. So if you become explosive neurologically, you lose endurance. So everything in fitness is a trade-off. There's no free lunch. But the great ones know how to tune the middle ground. So now there's biological limits. When I measure the great athletes, they have what we call sufficient strength, sufficient mobility, sufficient endurance, sufficient explosiveness. But the sport, if it demands excessive one of those, all right, they have to back off on all the other things. But now, the mo so now we're going to bring this down to the average person. Getting really strong, and there's strength coaches who will say, it's always better to be stronger. That is not true. Uh, I've done experiments time and time again. I could take the average volleyball team, and the coach says, I would like you to add four centimeters on the vertical jump of every one of our players. And okay, so let's do a squat training strengthening program. And you, I know what the results will be. They're the same every single time. Half of the team will increase their vertical jump after three months of doing squats. 20% of the team, there will be zero effect. And 30% of the team will ruin their vertical jump through exactly the same training program. And then I learned to ask two questions. I would say to the players, and every player knows this, are you naturally strong or are you naturally quick? And right there, we've just identified the binary response. The super responders are the ones who are naturally quick, and now you add strength, they can jump even higher. But for the ones who are naturally strong, when a muscle contracts, it creates force and stiffness. You just added more stiffness. So to make a stronger person stronger and think they're going to jump higher is dead wrong. So do you see to always get stronger? So if you think you're going to strength train your way out of back pain, uh, I think you're mistaken. But now we get back to that word sufficient. When I measure the great athletes, and I've measured the very, very best in MMA, uh, many Olympic sports, uh, basketball, the players who dominate the sport are not the strongest. Did you know that some of the players who uh, rebound and play around the, 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 the basket actually have weaker hands and weak, weaker grip strength? They have a touch for the ball. It is so, strength coaches don't want to hear this. Uh, at least some of them don't, but some of them know how to strategically tune the body. So now the key is, for the demands that that person wants to train for, train sufficient strength, sufficient mobility, sufficient endurance. But if you get more endurance, I'm glad you enjoy your slowness. You will not be an explosive player. But if you want to be an explosive player, you're going to have to only train for very short little intervals because the slow twitch uh, endurable metabolism will decrease your your speed and strength. So do you see what I mean? Anyway, the, I, I hope yeah. that answers your question. And to tune an athlete to peak is a real expertise. And then throw in, okay, you've got a back pain history. So now we have to do that. Uh, build sufficient robustness in your back and in sufficient athleticism. And... Uh, take you to the top again. So recently there's been a, a rise, I know you've spoken about this before, in, in CrossFit. And for those who don't know what CrossFit is, it is a, 
uh, a functional based training um, which has a competitive element and it has a huge amount of different or varied types of training from Olympic lifting, deadlifting, overhead pressing to gymnastic type movements, handstands and burpees and pull-ups. Um, so it has this huge variety as well as running and swimming and rowing. Um, and it has huge demands on it, on, on the body and on the spine. So in that model, how does the, the high level CrossFit athlete kind of fit into the picture? Because they're someone that is very mobile. They're also very strong. I mean, are these guys just freaks of nature or is, have they just had? Okay. Yeah, they are. They've been touched. They've been touched <laughs> okay. by the hand but of God. They're the outliers. I mean, that, that truly is the answer. So if you want to be a top level uh, CrossFit competitor, number one, you've got to choose your parents. That's the most important thing. So if someone like myself wanted to train to become a top level CrossFit competitor, I, I would have been uh, injured. So, but you know, there's a lot of sports like that. So here's, here's a question I ask a lot of uh, athletes or shall we say recreational athletes. So they're a computer operator and they go to the CrossFit gym and then they'll say, Oh, well, you know, we hear you're good. Uh, can you get me out of this back pain? And I'll say, yeah, what's your goals? And they say, oh, well, I want to set a personal best in this. I want to do this and that. And I said, yes, okay. You do realize that the fitter you become and the higher you go up the CrossFit ladder, the shorter your athletic career. And they say, what do you mean? And I say, you will wear out your body faster. So look at the, um, I have uh, probably more than, than most uh, Masters Olympians. Now, do you think the Masters Olympians were real Olympians when they were younger? No, they didn't because the real Olympians are all used up. There's not much left in their bodies in their 50s and 60s and 70s. So I get back to the question with that person, what is your goal? And they say, well, I, I, they, I, I want this next record. And I said, good, I hope you enjoy your pain because it, it's not, it's going to be very, very difficult. But can I ask you a question? How about, is your goal really, you want to be the best 80 year old granddad or grandmother and play with your grandchildren and have a lot of fun with them, go out and have hikes, kick a ball around. And then they, they pause for a minute and they say, actually, yes, that's my goal. And I say, good. Now here's what we're going to do at the CrossFit gym. And, and we'll, we'll, we're going to pass on that uh, goal of setting your personal best in, in deadlift or uh, repeated Olympic lifts. Uh, we're going to change it up a little, but you've greatly increased your uh, chances of being that rocking 80 year old. So that's some of the psychology and it's also some of the, uh, uh, wisdom of creating a program to redirect their goals a little bit. So, so that doesn't mean don't do CrossFit. You know, that's kind of what you're saying is, is training for your goals and knowing what your goals are. And, you know, you, you know that's exactly oh, that's it. it. That. Yeah. Brilliant. It sums it up really nicely. You've just revolutionized my, um, uh, my physical <laughs> outlook for the next uh, 45 years there. Um, <laughs> yeah. How do you train sufficiently for that 85 year old you? Um, what, a, what an outlook to take. And what different approach you're going to take as you step to the bar? Well, you know, I keep hearing this person coming and saying, oh, I've got, I've got degenerative whatevers. And I said, really? Because you realize that your body is desperately struggling to regenerate. 
every damn piece of your body is regenerating except your teeth. And you're just doing silly things to stop that regeneration. So you're on the path to degeneration. You're on the wrong side of the tipping point, my friend. But I can show you how to get onto the right side of the tipping point. And, you know, I wish I knew this when I was 20 as well, but I didn't. But once I took the next 45 years to, to really study and understand how to switch the tipping point, I mean, I, I'm 60. I, I have zero pain in my body. I'm reasonably fit. I'm reasonably strong. I, I have a lot of fun physically, and I have zero pain. But, you know, every day I have a routine, and there's nothing excessive to it. You know, two days a week I, I strength train. Two days a week I work on the stuck things that, that my injuries in the past, that I need a little bit of mobility. Two days a week I do something different. For the ticker, I, I, I ride, I cycle, I will go for a cross-country ski in the winter. Uh, and then, most importantly, I take one day a week and I do nothing, and that's the adaptation day. And, you know, going back to CrossFit, it's the culture. The people are keen and let's say, oh, well, on my day off, I just banged out uh, 50 air squats and ran 5K. And I think, God, I hope you enjoy your pain. <laughs> Not did they take that biological necessary period of adaptation? Brilliant. So, you know, I'm giving you lots of clues here that uh, they're wisdoms that get people out of pain and tune their bodies for appropriate performance levels over the long haul. Um, well, I think that brings us rather nicely onto our next question. Now, <clears throat> This is a predominantly a podcast for people who have back pain. That's why they're going to be tuning in. Um, one of the things which you're, you're world, world famous for is the, the creation of the big three, um, uh, this, this triplet of exercise and movement uh, to help strengthen the spine, to help prevent further pain, and actually to, to help people once they're through that adaptation and uh, rest phase. Um, can you explain the big three to us? And to everyone listening. Yes. Um, for years, we searched for exercises that would create sufficient stability in the spine. So let me use an example of a backhoe. So you're familiar with a backhoe, which is a tractor with a front end loader, and it's got an articulating arm on the back that digs holes in earth. Everyone knows the JCB in the UK. Uh, a backhoe. digger for all our UK um, listeners, yes. Oh, a, a digger, digger. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Okay, so do you notice that in order to dig, the operator has to put down the stabilizers? Those are the two arms that come out behind the rear tires and lift the rear tires off the ground. Now, those are called stabilizers. And if you don't put down the stabilizers, the digger cannot dig. It just pulls the tractor around as you put the uh, claws in the ground and the bucket and dig earth. Uh, do you agree? I do. Yes. So the digger is an articulated linkage. You must have what we call proximal stability for it to allow the articulating linkage to function and perform distal athleticism, which is to pull earth. Your body is an articulated linkage. It follows exactly the same mechanical laws as the digger. You have to create proximal stability. In other words, if I was to push you with one arm using my bench press muscles, distally to my shoulder, the 
pec major, the bench press muscle, pulls my arm around in flexion so I can push you. But proximally, that same muscle attaches to my rib cage. So proximally, it just bends to my rib cage towards my shoulder. So that doesn't create any athleticism. In fact, it causes your body to collapse. So I cannot push you until I establish proximal stiffness in my core. Now I can unleash distal uh, athleticism and push you. You understand? Yeah. So how do you build that proximal stability? How do you do it in a way that spares the person's back because they don't have much tolerance? They break to pain if they stress their backs. So the exercises that kept bubbling up to the top to guarantee sufficient stability and do it in a way that spares the spine turned out to be what we called the modified curl up. So you're familiar with how we, we modified it, putting the hands under the low back, never flatten the back to the floor when you're laying on the back, bend one knee to reduce some of the neural tension, uh, and then lift the head, neck, and shoulders. Just to, Are you in inches or centimeters? Centimeters, or both. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Depends how old you are. <laughs> so you lift your head, neck, and shoulders just two or three centimeters, not curling them up too far. And you hover there and hold for 10 seconds and that kind of thing. Now, that won't get you to the Olympics, but it will create sufficient stability. Then we do the various forms of the side planks in the form that is most appropriate for that particular person, and then the bird dog for the back. Those three exercises guarantee sufficient uh, stability and we are able to tune them and vary the forms that the vast majority of people are able to not only tolerate them but they thrive on them so that's the foundation and uh, then we found that neurologically the 10 second holding time which i learned in russia by the way and in, in, uh, they were very very clever at creating uh, base athleticism it also creates a neural stiffness. So after doing the big three, some people say, you know, I don't have pain for two hours. Yes, you have micro movements in your joint and you've just been able to stiffen them out for the next two hours because your brain remembers those muscle patterns. You've just created a muscle memory. If the patient says, uh, you know, I feel better for the next uh, hour or two, I say, good. Let's break the exercises in half. So you do half of the repetitions mid-morning, you do half mid-afternoon. Now we've created two points in the day to desensitize their back. So again, it's just layers upon layers of expertise to really tune them to uh, engineer out, I guess would be the right word, tune out the uh, pain mechanism allow the desensitization and build that foundation where we can really create a, a, a robust uh, foundation for activities they want to do. Fantastic. That's, that sums up nicely. It's an exercise which I remember, you know, the three exercises which we learned, you know, as you taught us, you know, kind of when you came over to the ACC in Bournemouth and I've used them a lot with patients ever since. So thank you for, for going over that. And for anyone that's listening, we'll put some links up to your videos of them on YouTube. Uh, so if anyone wants to try these exercises or, you know, clinicians listening want to use them, then they can have a, have a, have a watch of those. Now, to kind of sum up towards the end, one thing we ask a lot of our, or almost all of our guests is the favorite myths that, that myths that they hear. And I know that 
probably your favorite myth that we've already spoken about is that there's no such thing as non-specific low back pain. Are there any other myths that you hear frequently that you get tired of hearing that you are frequently having to bust in front of patients or to other clinicians? Yes, but uh, I would say every person that comes here is under a misimpression because that's why they're here. They've already been to a dozen different clinicians. Uh, I'm seen as the last line, for example, and some will say, you know, I've tried everything. I've tried massage and chiropractic and physical therapy and osteopathy I've and and everything has failed and I've been told the last option I have is surgery and I said really we follow up with every patient that we've ever seen and of those who are classified in that category they've done everything and surgery is their last option we get 95% of them to avoid surgery and in a one to two year follow-up, they were glad they made that decision. So there, I can give you that statistic and stand by it because we've measured it. Now, I, I just also want to point out that there is a time and a place for surgery, absolutely. Um, you know, there are people who, again, they've never been assessed and they didn't realize they had a big, say a Tarloff cyst on one of their nerve roots and they can't understand why when they turn their head a certain way, they get sacral pain. Or when they sit in the car, they get unrelenting pain and there's no disc bulge, but then we find there is the cyst on the nerve. So there, there might be uh, an example or someone who's fallen and slipped on ice, for example, uh, and they, they've, they've had a, you know, a type of uh, unstable fracture that just isn't knitting together. That might be an example. But, um, you know, I, I hear some people, oh, here's a stretch for your, your back pain. And then when I measure their, their pain mechanism, it's exactly that stretch that's <laughs> causing it. Or they might be doing a certain, any, I'm not picking on stretching because, you, you know, having said that, isn't it interesting? Every one of these discussions need a context because I don't know of a gold medal Olympic sprinter who doesn't stretch. So, I, you know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not condemning yeah. stretching. It's, it's absolutely critical. But uh, in, in some people who have back pain, I mean, if, if all they've done is stretch and they continue to have back pain, I have to inform them, what you're currently doing isn't working. <laughs> it's causing you to stay a patient. So. And that's a very hard question to, or a very hard point to, to show to athletes, especially athletes, you know, when they've been doing it for 15 years to try and manage themselves until they come and see you and you say, well, this is the, the worst thing you've been doing for the, for the last 15 years of your professional career. You know, it's probably not what they want to hear. <laughs> uh, well, I think in their hearts, they know it. Uh, you, you know, I, I've measured some of the top NBA basketball players. The, these are people who can take off on one foot, fly through the air from the top of the key and dunk a basketball. It's absolutely magnificent. Uh, uh, let me ask you a question. Do you think they have tight hamstrings or loose hamstrings? Loose hamstrings. Oh. Yeah, the average person thinks they have loose hamstrings. Yeah. Dead wrong. They have tight hamstrings, and that's the tuned spring that they jump from. So high jumpers, do you think they have tight yeah. hamstrings? Of course no, they do. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the, the greatest athletes have tuned springs. And uh, quite often with, with athletes, uh, we, we do anti-mobility training and we add strategic stiffness. We tune their springs to better store and recover elastic energy. 
So, you know, the the great athletes, you know, the ones who hit really hard, I'm thinking of the martial artists who kick hard and and can strike very hard. They put a little bit of a muscle near a muscular pulse, but they know how to unleash a spring. Fantastic. Um, Before we sum up and leave on that point, um, we've got a, a little thing called 60 Second Spine, Professor McGill. Now, this is where we ask all our guests, if you had 60 seconds to improve spine an activity a, a task for someone listening at home with back pain they've got 60 seconds left in their day what would you give them to improve their back pain here now this day all right you have to go on i wrote a book for the lay public called back mechanic that guides the reader through a self-assessment nine tests to help them start to understand the precise mechanism of their pain then based on that mechanism, it gives them a few clues on what to not do and what to do. Done. 30 seconds. <laughs> You've got 30 seconds to relax. Thank you, Amazon. Uh, Marvellous. Um, well, tell you what, that, that's quite handy. Um, Professor McGill, where do we find out more about you after we've bought the book? What's next? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not one for making posts on uh, social media and, and that kind of thing. Uh, we do have a website called backfitpro.com where we have numerous articles. Uh, my textbooks are there. Uh, for clinicians, we do have uh, courses that we uh, have just put online and the, the, the last one is going online in another uh, few weeks. Uh, and they may be interested in becoming uh, certified in, in our approaches, or we do have master clinicians around the world for your audience, who, where do we find someone who's been trained at a high level in this approach of, of converging with precision on the mechanism of pain and coming up with the most appropriate intervention? So we have a, a few of those around the world that are posted on the website as well. Um, there are some, uh, some people do very well with back support. So if, if someone sits in their chair and they just put their hands uh, behind their low back, and if that feels better, then a back support while sitting will allow them not to build up that deep pain and allow them to have a certain capacity so that they, they can go and train and uh, be pain-free, or they can go and hill walk. Uh, but if they just continue to sit at their computer and, and allow the pain sensitivity to, to uh, grow, then uh, all of the other activities are highly compromised. But um, anyway, uh, I, well, I do everything through the website. And, and of course, podcasts like this. Thanks for getting the word out to your uh, listenership and helping to spread the word a bit and, and reduce uh, the, the great mythology that's out there in this uh, world. World, uh, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Thank you so much, Professor McGill, for um, uh, for coming on the show. Uh, so that was backfitpro.com, and we'll have all the links to everything in the show notes as well for you guys listening at home. Um, fantastic. Rob, anything to add? No, I just want to say thank you ever so much for joining us, and thank you for giving us so much of your, your time. I know you're very busy um, assessing, assessing athletes so and, and everyone with back pain, so thank you very much for you know taking time on your Saturday morning to talk to us and our, and our listeners. Yeah. You're welcome, uh, Rob and Dave, uh, and uh, good luck to both of you, and thanks for all the initiative that you two make as well. 
Well, guys, uh, so that was the almighty Professor Stuart McGill. Um, uh, over and out. Thank you. <laughs>